0: This is the Sharp End Podcast, a podcast aimed at minimizing future outdoor accidents by way of storytelling. Real people sharing real stories. If you have a story you'd like to share that aligns with my mission, contact me through my website, thesharpendpodcast.com. And I have a Patreon. This is a really awesome platform that allows you to support projects you believe in. I am one person creating this show. I literally am the Sharpen podcast. I have no team, no crew of editors or makeup artists or fact checkers. It's just me. And I give my personal and free time to produce this show for the sole purpose of minimizing future outdoor accidents. I keep ads to a minimum. I keep my shows short and sweet. I put a lot of love, effort, tears, time, and money into giving guests a platform to share their story in a safe judgment-free zone so we can all learn from their incident. If you value my show, please show your support by becoming a Patreon member. Head to patreon.com slash the sharp end podcast. There are multiple levels you can choose from, and you can do a one-time or monthly donation. I wouldn't be able to continue to produce this show without support from my listeners. Last April, I completely severed my ACL while backcountry snowboarding outside of Valdez, Alaska. My ski partner was well below me and out of sight when I heard it snap. A few minutes later, he radioed up to me and asked if I was okay. The transmission came through loud and clear on my Rocky talkie that was clipped to the left shoulder strap on the outside of my pack. I radioed back. It's my knee. I partnered with Rocky talkie for a reason. These radios are lightweight, durable, and they work in the extreme cold. They have impressive battery life and solid range. I use mine on every single backcountry adventure, from rock climbing, hiking, backcountry skiing, snow machining, and even road trips. Use code SHARPEND to get 10% off your radios at RockyTalkie.com. This show is also supported by the American Alpine Club. Today, I chat with Christian, a 50-year-old father and husband who enjoys casually recreating in the outdoors. He tells me about an unplanned bivvy he and a friend had at 13,000 feet in the eastern Sierra Mountains in California. Check it out.
1: My name is Christian Kiefer. I'm a 50-year-old father of seven. Um, I'm a husband. I'm a, a totally amateur alpinist who uh, climbed a lot, maybe 20, 25 years ago, and then took a long break because of all those children. And um, just kind of coming back to it in the last year or two. Um, I'm a novelist. Uh, I write fiction. Um, I'm an English professor and I run the Master of Fine Arts program at Ashland University in Ohio. Um, Coming back to climbing after 20, 25 years away, um, I I found it somewhat difficult to find climbing partners who are um, either not 20 years old or who are not 50 years old and super, super, super good at it. Um, I'm thinking of myself kind of as a beginner all over again after this many years away. And um, I found a partner um, on Mountain Project, a guy named Lewis, and uh, we really hit it off. We're sort of about at the same level. We're interested in in very similar kinds of things. Um, We're both very interested in alpinism, whatever that means for a guy who's 50. Um, I have no uh, illusions that I'm going to suddenly go do K2 at this age, but um, I do love being out there. I love a certain amount of exposure and a certain amount of commitment, but having said that, I'm I'm no Brett Harrington or Steph Davis or or Melissa Arnott. You know, I'm not, I'm not uh, courageous enough, strong enough, or skilled enough to put myself out there that far. Um, Lewis and I came up with a couple of of objectives um, that were located in the Eastern Sierra in California, outside of Bishop. Um, if the listener hasn't been to the Eastern Sierra, it's a, a quite steep face all along the eastern side of the Sierra, which is the part of California that faces Nevada. Um, the Sierra there uh, very gently slope upward from west to east and then very abruptly cut down to the desert floor on that side. That's where you get Mount Whitney and, and the Matter uh, California's the Matterhorn and a lot of other peaks that are you know sort of well known. We decided to do a climb called Bear Creek Spire, and which was going to take us maybe two or three days. We hiked into a base camp. We did the climb. It was a ridge climb, um, uh, pretty exposed, but not particularly technical. You know, we simul climbed it, which for the listener is where you're both roped up and climbing at the same time. And and again, it wasn't a lot of exposure, and it wasn't particularly. Uh, dangerous in terms of the consequences if either of us fell, but it was enough that we felt like we should be on rope. And, you know, we, you know, that's probably right at the edge of our ability at the time. It was, um, it was enough commitment. We camped at the base of the climb and spent the night there and went up the next day. And um, so we did that successfully. And then the following day or the day after we were looking at Mount Emerson. Now Mount Emerson shows up in the guidebooks as a as a fairly easy climb. It's kind of described as sort of like a half day um, alpine climb. It goes up a gully um, that basically intersects with a ridge that goes to the peak. And all the descriptions of it that we read made it sound like it was maybe sort of a half day. Um, The crux is right at the beginning and and it's perhaps 5'4". And most climbers free solo that beginning part which um, we had talked about doing, thought maybe we would try it, maybe we wouldn't. I'm 50 years old, as you know, and I'm not really a free... Like, free soloing is not a thing that I do, like, ever or ever want to do.
0: So was the objective for Mount Emerson, which is 13,225 feet, was the objective for Mount Emerson, was it a rock climb or was it a, or was it more of a hike with some uh, tricky um, exposed uh, alpine rock moves in between? What, what what was the climb like?
1: Well, we thought it was going to be the latter because the descriptions in all the guidebooks are uh, characteristically very vague and very vague to me meant there's not a lot of route finding difficulties. It's pretty straightforward Um We got to the base of the route. It's called the waterfall route. It's kind of the standard way up uh, Mount Emerson. Um, The beginning looked uh, exposed, but sort of doable. So I decided I would sort of start heading up solo and give it a shot, thinking maybe I could back down if I needed to. Um, I got up, you know, 20, 30 feet. I felt a little uneasy about it, but I also felt pretty committed at that point. So I kept on going uh lewis shortly came up behind me this is in a gully so you can't really see outside of this gully and it's um maybe easyish fifth class moves to uh platforms that you can kind of rest on followed by another sort of maybe five three five four couple of moves and then another sort of platform you can rest on sounds fun it was pretty fun and it was like just spicy enough to make it feel like it was full value. Like it was a little scary uh, to be off of rope, um, not something I'm super comfortable with, but I was pretty gratified that, that I was doing it and we were doing it successfully. Um, we We reached a point where we conferred about the route description, which effectively said, when you get to the giant chalkstone in the gully go left over some slabs until you can get back into the gully
0: what is a chalkstone
1: a huge boulder had fallen down the gully at some point and was lodged in the gully ahead of us blocking the path you have to climb around it or you got to go over it and to go over it would have required roping up so we thought okay Um, In the descriptions, this is not a climb that you necessarily have to rope up on. Now, having said that, we brought our rope, we brought some gear, we brought sort of a small alpine rack. Um, And it was, you know, it it was cool enough that we had, um, you know, I had my sort of Heli Hansen uh, insulated shell on. But, I, you know, it wasn't cold enough that I had any long underwear or anything like that on. I was just wearing my climbing pants and my approach shoes for this climb. Um, Lewis was dressed similarly. We, you know, we, we read that description off of our phones that we had taken pictures of and we decided, okay, I can see the chalkstone let's veer left and go around the chalkstone and get back in the gully. And we veered left onto some very exposed slabs. They were fourth class, but very high consequences if anybody slipped and we wandered all over that side of the mountain back and forth across those slabs looking for a way back into the gully and we could not find the way back into the gully so we finally returned to our starting point roped up and went directly over that chalk stone now what this means in terms of the route is we were making super super good progress i mean we did an alpine start and hiked into the base of this climb in the dark and we were trucking right along before we got on rope once we got on rope um, as, as everybody who climbs knows, uh, being on rope just slows you way down. It's, it's, it's much safer objectively, but on a mountain like Mount Emerson, where you're doing an alpine route, you, know, you want to go fast because you want to get off that mountain when it's still light and uh, before anything changes like the weather. Um, so we're roping up. Uh, Lewis is leading. He does a, a, a fabulous job. Uh, leading us up and over that, that chalk stone and back into the gully. Now, the next piece of information in the description is when the gully becomes polished granite, veer left over a rib and go toward an obvious notch in the summit ridge. So granite mountains in the Sierra are basically comprised entirely of ribs, Everything is notched and everything is polished.
0: <laughs> so I was, gonna, I was gonna say, isn't this route is this the route known for it being water polished?
1: Yeah, it's why yeah, yeah. So we're going up and you know we're 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 second and tr- and 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 third and fourth and fifth guessing ourselves at this point. Like, is this polished enough? Is this polished enough? Is that the notch? Where's the rib? Which rib? And um You know, it it, it could be had we a bit more beta and had we not read the descriptions and thought, okay, this is going to be easy, we may have had a better sense of the route. I think what happened to us is we made a decision that this was polished enough, let's veer left and, and see if we can get up that way. I think we left that gully maybe 1,500 feet too early because the climbing got very much full value very fast. Um, It was definitely like roped up climbing, much more exposure. Um, uh, uh, Lewis was continuing to lead. Um, I had I I even had some trouble following some of the stuff he led up. Like and and I can, you know, I've 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 done five ten in my approach shoes on on top rope. I mean, I'm not like a super badass climber, you know, I'm just a dude. Um and it was it was pretty clear like we are way off route. We don't know where we are exactly on this mountain. Um the topo's were not really detailed enough to give us much sense of the terrain. Um as as many people will know from doing alpine climbing, like the topo's are only so good when you're actually on a mountain in between a bunch of of granite ribs on a bunch of polished granite, trying to figure out which way to go. All you can do is decide to keep going up, 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 right? There was a point where I was in the gully, we were roping up, my alarm bells were going off, and and somewhere deep in my soul, uh, some version of me was saying, "We, we should go down. This is not going to work out this time. And we hadn't even gotten to the hard part yet, but I something about the the pace suddenly grinding to a halt made me think like, okay, we need to go back, maybe get a little bit more beta. We can try this again tomorrow. Um, but I didn't say anything, which is one of the learnings <laughs> that, mm. that we should be talking about later. If your alarm bells go off, I mean, the climb only counts if you get to go back to the car and talk about it over pizza later. Otherwise it doesn't count, you know um, and I, I thought at the time like okay, this is just me being you know being out of practice, everything's gonna be fine um, and we did rope up and we did leave that gully and we did get into some uh, some ground that was um, you know p- probably right at the edge of what we could do with packs and and approach shoes for the ability that i'm at i don't know what the stuff was rated but i i also will say like that's kind of what alpine climbing is to me it's sort of like the unexpected happens you sort of have to a problem solve and you have to make sure you do it in a way that's safe and it's within whatever margin of of safety and whatever margin of comfort you have set for yourself we um we finally reached a ridge which clearly led to the summit, and this was after sort of c- c- climbing over a ridge, going this is the wrong ridge, going back down into another gully, going up a rib, going up a you know going up a gully, going back down, crossing something else, and finally we hit a ridge where it was like, okay, this clearly leads to the summit, and it was also a realization like, holy shit, the summit is really far away still, like we are not. Anywhere near the summit, we're going to have to haul ass. And at this point, it might be three o'clock. Our descent time, uh, Lewis and I always decide on a descent time, and our descent time for Emerson was one o'clock. When one o'clock came, we thought the summit was probably pretty close, and it was just being blocked by the features of the mountain. As a result of which, we decided to persevere, and and move on up through the granite thinking clearly it's going to be quicker to go up and over the summit and down the descent chute, which is, which was just a walk off. Um, So now at
0: this point you're two hours after your turnaround time and you're still, you you haven't even made it to the summit yet.
1: We haven't made it to the summit. We can see the summit. And uh, the summit both looks close enough and too far away at the same time as it, as summits do on mountains. Uh, we thought, well, let's haul ass. If we can get to the descent chute and the, and it's dark, we can get down the descent chute in the dark. I didn't think we could probably climb forward in the dark. I don't think our skills and ability were such on that exposed ridge. And this is not quite a knife-edge ridge, but very sharp. The exposure is sort of constant. Um and again, you know, I'm no, I'm no Steph Davis or Brett Harrington or anybody, you know, I, uh, the exposure definitely wore me out a bit, you know, um, well,
0: you're also, I mean, Mount Emerson sitting at 13,000 feet and change 13,225 feet is a summit of, of yeah. Emerson.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So you're out of breath. You're, uh, you're extremely tired. Um, I, I felt physically, um, at the edge of my physical ability for sure. And Lewis uh, Lewis, <laughs> Lewis does this interesting thing in my climbing partner. He will verbally totally freak out and start screaming and sobbing and uh, and like he'll totally lose his shit and then he'll like center himself and he'll just go. It's like he has to like verbally get that out of him, which at the time I was like, "Whoa, my climbing partner is losing it." And Now I sort of realize, oh, that's sort of an interesting way to kind of clear the, clear the psyche out and go like, okay, I got to get my fear expressed and then I can go, you know? So there comes a point where the sun is going down. Lewis turns and looks at me and he says, I'm scared. And I said, I am too. Do you want me to call, uh, should I call 911? Like, is it time to call 911? And he said, yes. So.
0: Did you have cell phone service?
1: Yeah, I did have a little bit of cell phone service. So I was able to call in. So I I you know, I effectively knew we weren't going to get a rescue, but I did want I did want search and rescue to know there was somebody on the mountain. We were the only people on the mountain. I was able to give them our exact coordinates so they knew where we were. Um which just made me feel like there was a solid lifeline out there, you know, to somebody. How who many knew bars where of there. service did you have? I had maybe one. Um wow. uh-
0: and then how did you know your exact coordinates?
1: Um, I ran it through either Gaia or CalTopo to find out exactly where we were on the mountain. Okay, so
0: you have both those apps on your phone.
1: I did. And I also had a physical map. So I could have done the coordinates from the physical map if necessary.
0: If your phone died, that's huge to have an actual Topo, like a, like a hard copy of a Topo. That's huge. Good job.
1: Yeah, um, I, I think that's really one of the good takeaways here too, is like you can have all your Gaia's and your Cal Topos and tracking on everything. But if, if you run out of batteries and all that stuff, like you have to know where you are and yeah. how to get someplace and how to deal with it. Um, you know, I learned my map and compass stuff from the boy Scouts when I was a kid. And I, I have that knowledge in me now and, um, nothing trumps that in terms of being able to get yourself out of a situation. So sun's going down, we dick around with uh, with search and rescue long enough that it's essentially totally dark by the time we have to figure out where to bivy. And this will come up again when we talk about the learnings. We end up b- bivvying on a space that's probably three butt cheeks wide with uh Pretty significant drop on both sides. We created an anchor tied in. I had a disposable bivy sack in my bag. Um, Lewis did not. So we shoved our legs into this disposable bivy sack. With the wind chill, I think it was probably below 20 degrees that night. And um, it was very cold. Very, very cold. Um, I. Knew what was coming. Um, I have been benighted before. Uh, Twenty years ago, when I was younger, I I didn't feel particularly scared in the sense that I knew we would get through this. And I actually sent a text to my wife um, and said, like, "Hey, just so you know, we're stuck on a mountain." You know, uh, I called search and rescue. We're going to be here all night. She called me, and you know, her reaction was, "What have you gotten yourself into?" <laughs> you know, and I told her, and she said, "Okay, well, that's going to be an uncomfortable night." You know, and and. Part of it was like sort of her confidence in me that that I was going to be okay. Like she knows I've done a lot of of um, travel in the outdoors, and and this was this was um, not great, but I did know I was going to get through it. I'm not totally sure Lewis felt the same way. He's he's a bit newer to outdoor pursuits. You know, we held each other all night. And I, you know, there were points at which I laid directly on top of him with my entire body as he shook. Um, And I just kept thinking, like, just keep shivering. Just keep shivering. Like, if Lewis stops shivering, like, that's a problem. As long as he keeps shivering, I think we're going to be okay. Um, The wind was just whipping across that ridge. I didn't think we could get to a more sheltered location safely. We were so tired, Ashley, and um, just utterly spent, and so cold.
0: Why did you decide to bivy in that spot and not in a more yeah. flat, more wide? Like, how, were, did you feel stuck there? Or yeah,
1: I mean, that's a really good that's a really good question. So by the by the time we were done talking to search and rescue and giving them our coordinates, it had gone full dark, and uh, Lewis had already sat down. There was a spot a little bit f- further down the ridge, a spot we had crossed, but it involved some um, some some potentially serious downclimbing to get to it. We could have done it on rope, but we just made a decision that we couldn't safely move from the position that we were in, which was really an error of judgment in in a couple different ways. One is we should have. Well, I should have realized that we were going to be benighted, you know, a half hour or 45 minutes or an hour earlier, and we could have selected a, a place to stay the night. And there were some places that were quite sheltered and would have been more comfortable. Um, the other thing is uh, we should have simply moved. We should have just sort of like manned up, roped up and wrapped down to, or, or been lowered down to the, to a better bivvy position
0: did you have um, headlamps?
1: We did have headlamps. Yeah, we did have headlamps, but it was it was a very steep, precarious ridge and we made a lot of mistakes and that was not definitely not the place to bivy for sure.
0: Wow, so you're bivvying at 13,000 feet with wind chill in the cold, no sun to keep you warm. Yeah, it sounds like a cold night. And, and, you know,
1: sort of semi-paralyzed with fear in a lot of yeah. ways. You know, I mean, I'm, you know, on the one hand, I sort of like, I, I knew I would make it through, but on the other hand, I've sort of felt like I know I'll make it through and I just can't move. Like, as long as I don't yeah. move, I'm not going to fall. I'm not going to sprain my ankle, break my leg or do anything stupid. I'll just You're stay not going to make the
0: situation worse.
1: I'm not going to make the situation worse, which maybe was <laughs> a failure of bravery or, uh, or even common sense. But... Um, it, it was the decision. well, I think
0: that's the big that's the big question I mean that when we we're we're talking about finding our edge and pushing ourselves and seeing what we can do, you know whether or not you know to call for search and rescue or not to call for search and rescue that's that's the big judgment question you know um was it failure on your part or or was it the safe was it the safer of the two?
1: Option. Yeah, and I think that's okay. I, I think there's probably a listener right now going like, L- "Listen to this dumbass," you, you know, and I think that's fine. Um, I'm, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm not, I'm not like a hard man. I'm just like a novelist who likes to go outside and sort of and, and be out there in the in the mountains in a way that feels uh, true to to me and to who I am. Yeah, and I had a you know, I had a had a pretty nice conversation with search and rescue where they're like, "Well, we're not sending anyone to rescue you. You sound like you're going to be okay." And I said, "Yeah, we're we're going to be okay. I just want you to know that we're up here, you know." Um and we lay there all night shivering, um trying to occupy uh, you know, I was trying to occupy my mind with something that would get me through the whatever 12 hours of darkness. We you know, the the one positive thing about our location is we were directly in line with the sunrise, uh, which I knew sort of going, you know, when we hunkered down, I was like, okay, we're going to get the very first rays of the sun. Unfortunately, the, um, the fires had been raging in California so that when the sun finally came out, it was just this sort of like dull gray, not warm thing hovering out there in the smoke fields for, uh, for the sunrise. We finally did get up, uh, we, we uh, got to the, to the summit um, early that morning. Um, there was still a fair bit of, of climbing to do, including a, a real knife edge ridge, which I thought was beautiful and terrifying at the same time and wonderful. And, uh, and, and you know, the next day we finally got off the mountain. Um, it took almost the whole day, the descent and getting back to the car. Um, it was long. We were super, obviously super, super tired and spent, and that was effectively the adventure. Now, the, now the listener is going to say, like, well, wait a minute, nothing actually happened to you, <laughs> but a lot happened to my brain in terms of what I learned and what I got out of this.
0: Um I First of all, I just love that you um, and Lewis summited the next day, like you slept, you got a cold night and then, you know, and then you woke up and you're like, yeah, let's go to the summit. We're here. Yeah. Well, we're, we're healthy. We're safe. We're here. Yeah. I mean,
1: that was the, you know, it's funny the way down, you had to go over the summit to get down the chute. So I'm not sure we would have done that. I mean, Lewis, Lewis was pretty done. He was like, I want to get off this mountain. Um, I kept trying to talk us through the, the, the notion that listen, like that was awesome. We made it like, that was super scary, but also awesome. This is, this is what Alpine climbing is like, let's embrace it. Now we get an extra day of climbing out of this, you know, but um, it's hard to convince somebody of that when they're, when they're, you know, past their uh, past the limit of their physical endurance. And it was a, uh, We're definitely very hard. We had, you know, the headaches, and we were tired. And man, just you know, there's a point at which you just want to like light a fire and lay down in your sleeping bag and take a long, long nap. I I have to say though, Ashley, like I had been benighted before on North Palisade, and I'd also been through a lightning storm on Shasta twenty-five years ago. So I I had a little bit of experience of being in situations that were too dangerous for me. So I did feel uh, maybe a bit more centered then Lewis might have felt I said su- I suspect that if Lewis got went through another benighting he would probably feel more like I did at that benighting which is like okay this is going to be terrible for 12 hours but we're going to make it through this you yeah know? takes a little practice you know it takes practice understanding what your limits are and and what you can survive and what's dangerous and what's merely uncomfortable I think, you know, one of the, one of the big learnings from this, or one of the things that that's worth talking about is um, alpine climbing to me is, is, is extreme backpacking. And I think the more backpacking experience you have, the better you're going to be at alpine climbing. And, and, and what I mean to say is if you're in a blizzard in a safe place, when you're backpacking, then when you're in a blizzard on a ridge, when you're climbing, you've at least already been in a blizzard once, you know, or twice or 10 times. I mean, I would suggest that anybody really interested in alpine climbing, like, you know, spend your winter not climbing, but like snowshoeing or backcountry skiing and camping out in the snow and really get a sense of, of what it is to just be out there day after day after day after day, because that's what a lot of it is. Um, the climbing is obviously super important but just you know having some exposure when you're when you're in a safe location is pretty important to your understanding of what you're capable of doing when you're in a, a location with higher consequences
0: Did you have enough food for the next day or you did you feel like you were
1: We had a little bit of food we had a little bit of water I'm a I'm a diabetic on insulin so had my insulin gone South somehow um, had I dropped it or broken it or something, um, that would have been a more serious situation for me. So one of the reasons I was calling search and rescue was just let them know, like I'm a 50 year old diabetic, I have needles, I have insulin, I've got some backup gear. Um, if if anything really goes south with any of that equipment or supplies, my medical supplies, then we're in a situation where I'm, you know, we're we're going to need like a helicopter pretty quickly.
0: So you weren't asking for a rescue. You were just saying, hey, this is me and this person. Yep. Uh, here's the situation, and we'll call if we need you. But yeah. so it was more, more informative instead of calling actually for a rescue.
1: Yeah, it was more. Well, it, okay. was, it, was also, it was also, though, like, hey, if you guys think we need a rescue, like please let us you know, come and rescue us, You know, <laughs> obviously. And I think it's perfectly acceptable to call them and say, like, hey, I don't think we need a rescue, but here's the situation I'm in. And please just sort of monitor this channel, you know? So knowing somebody out there knows where we are specifically, they've maybe climbed this route before, they know exactly what ridge we're on. um, uh, That makes a huge difference. So, I mean, my, my advice is like, if you think you might need to call Search and Rescue, go ahead and call them and just let them know the situation because that's their gig. You know, they want to know where you are and what the situation is and let them help you make a determination as to what to do next. Um, I'd also say, you know, another another big learning is stick to your retreat plan. If you can't see the summit from where you're at, if, it, if it's one o'clock and that's what you've decided your retreat plan is, you're going to turn around at one o'clock. I, I would say like, It doesn't matter if you have to leave $300 worth of cams behind or whatever, like your retreat plan is there for a reason. Get your ego out of the way and turn around and, and wrap back down the route and go home and then try it again the next day, man. Try it again the next day. And then also I'd say, um, you know, this goes back to sort of like alpinism is, is like extreme backpacking. I, I would say when it's clear that something has gone south and this is like a theme, I think, of a lot of your shows, Ashley, it's um, just deal, deal with that moment, like understand, like losing your shit is not really going to help anybody. Um, you know, you can lose your shit, per, you know, briefly, you know, scream and yell and cry and do what you need to do. And then like, you've got to center yourself and take care of it. So how bad is this situation really? What can you do to mitigate, mitigate the, um, the extent of, of the injuries or the situation? Um, what kind of training do you have or not have? What kind of resources do you have or not have? Um, I hope anybody who's serious about the backcountry has their wilderness first responder. And I really hope that if you're in a situation where you're on a ridge on Mount Emerson, um, that you've already backpacked, you know, a hundred or two hundred or three hundred days, um, and you've and you've climbed enough that you're that you're familiar with the systems that you need in place to keep yourself safe out there. And apropos of a previous discussion, if it starts looking like you're going to need to bivvy maybe an hour before uh the sun goes down, like you should already be in a spot and setting up some kind of camp or location. And we're not talking about you've got to dig out a snow cave. Um I mean, it could be you have to dig out a snow cave, but I'm just talking about like the kind of route we were on, there were ample bivvy sites that were so much better than the site that we ended up in and had we Understood an hour earlier that we weren't going to make it to the summit, which would have been obvious had we not been so frantically trying to make it to the summit, um, we could have had a much more sheltered and therefore much safer a night. Um, being up on that ridge, right on the ridge, there was no reason whatsoever for that. That was just a, a catastrophic error. You know, a, a, apropos of that, set yourself up. For an all-night camp, so insulate yourself from the ground. Um, take your climbing rope and spool it out underneath you. Um, make sure that you're not touching any rock if you can avoid it, because that stuff will just suck all the warmth out of your body, no matter right. What you right do. It gets
0: so cold, doesn't it? So
1: cold, it? <laughs> and it stays. Yeah. And it stays cold. Um, you know, since that since that trip on Emerson, I've got a proper Rab bivy sack. Um, a couple of puffy down mitts and puffy down pants and a backup battery and a balaclava all stuffed into a stuff sack and crunched down to maybe like eight inches by eight inches. You know, it's like rock hard and it lives on the bottom of my bag. Anytime I do anything um, outdoors now, I take it with me everywhere I go. I'd also suggest um, you've got to figure out a way to occupy your brain with something that, um, you know replay a sports event i i replayed um jimmy chin and conrad and renan's meru film in my mind all night and i i it's funny ashley i kept thinking like well jimmy and conrad like they're amazing but they're also like dads and like if those dads can do this i can totally do this
0: Not every Sharpen story is as gripping as others. I produce this variety for multiple reasons. There are so many types of outdoor recreators that we share space with, and it's so important to me to showcase the diversity within that culture. Christian didn't have a massive epic, and he still had multiple learnings to share with us. Remember that you don't need an epic disaster or even a near miss to debrief your experience. It's equally important to come home after playing outside and talk about what went right. Thanks to Christian for vulnerably sharing his story with our outdoor community. And as you heard at the beginning of this episode, Christian is a novelist. Pick up one of his published books at your local bookstore. I added some of his recent work in the show notes for your convenience. And as always, thank you so much to Rocky Talkie and the American Alpine Club for believing in my podcast mission. Many of the guests on this show have saved money on their remote rescue just by being a member of the American Alpine Club. Learn all about the member benefits on the American Alpine Club website. Visit AmericanAlpineClub.org to learn more and join today. Finally, please show your gratitude by financially backing this podcast on Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash the sharpben podcast to support this show. A little bit goes a long way. And as always, remember, play hard and be smart.